Thanks for checking out the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. To find out more about us, visit our website at iloveelevate.com. You can also stay up to date with what's going on by finding us on social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with your friends. We hope you enjoy this message and it brings you closer to Jesus. Holy Father, Dad, thank you so much for your presence. Lord, that let everything that is done at Elevate give you glory. Let Elevate be an altar that we lay ourselves on, that we lay our talents on, on our treasures and our time. That every friendship, every time we get out of our comfort zone, let it be sweet incense to you. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to get together with other men and women of God and worship your name. You are so worthy. Lord, if every breath that we breathed gave you glory, not one would be wasted. Holy Father, you are an amazing God. Thank you, Lord, for the story that we're going to read tonight. Thank you for what you're teaching us through it. Your word is sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, it cuts past the bone and the marrow to the very soul and spirit. Lord, you're planting seeds in our hearts. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, we are kicking off our new series called Big Girl Pants. And it's a series where we discuss women of the Bible who are powerful women confronted with impossible odds and they had to put on their big girl pants. And in every situation, God received the glory. Tonight, I have the privilege of speaking on Deborah from Judges chapter 4 and 5. And I'm just going to lay down just a little backstory because we're jumping into the middle kind of, of a river here and a current that's already in motion. And I want you to know what's happening in the bigger picture. Israel during this time does not have a king. They would have a series of judges, but God at this point did not want them to have a king because the intent was for he himself to be Israel's king and them to grow and mature to be able to recognize his will and grow to that. And so God was using prophets and judges to lead the people at this time. They were in a very sick cycle because this idea of God being their king, was not resonating with their very sinful human heart. And so they were going through this ring around the rosy. They would sin and fall to idolatry, sick, sick levels of idolatry and evil. And then God would bring in a bigger, more powerful nation to come in and oppress them, conquer them, rob them. And then after years of this, they would cry out, to God again. They would repent. God would send a judge to come in and defeat the enemy, restore God's people, and then for usually the life of that judge, they would live in peace. And after that judge passed away, they would quickly devolve again back into sin and idolatry, enter big oppressor, repentance, big judge comes in, sets them free, Sin cycle around and around and around. And let's be honest, doesn't that same cycle happen in our lives far too often? Don't we seem to get on that carousel around and around? 
we seem to be doing all right for a little while, but then we gravitate back to our old nature. And then something confronts us or wakes us up and we repent and God just moves heaven and earth for us. And we're good for a little time and then we swing back again. It's so true. Let's take a look at the story of Deborah. What an incredible woman she was. And it is just fun to talk about this story. So if you'll jump on this moving train with me, we'll get going tonight right away. Let's jump into her story. Judges chapter 4, verse 1. When Ehud was dead, Ehud was the previous judge who assassinated the the oppressor king who led an army to defeat the bad guys and his life lasted about 80 years and Israel had peace during that time. And so the judge has died. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of Yahweh. Anytime you see the capital L-O-R and D in your Bibles, that is the editor's Uh, Note to us that that is the divine personal name of God as marked and written about in Exodus 3. Uh, So they are doing evil again in the sight of Yahweh. So following the cycle. So Yahweh sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harosheth Hagoyim. Sisera, enter the antagonist, the bad guy. Dun, 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 dun. Now, Sisera was, first, we have to recognize that he was appointed by God for this, to oppress them. Like, that's uncomfortable for us to, to accept. But God is using this nation, an evil nation, to bring discipline to his people. Now, during this time, Israel was not militarized. They didn't have an official army. They didn't have weapons. That's why in the the very previous chapter, it notes that this one guy, he fought against uh, this army with an ox goad. It's just like a pointed stick that you drive cattle with because they don't have weapons. They are not militarized in any great way. If there was anyone who was going to go fight, they were farmers, vine keepers, carpenters, and they had the tools of their trade. Sisera was very well militarized. He has what is noted as 900 iron chariots. An iron chariot in those days was like an army tank. Imagine you today as a soldier with a 9mm pistol against an army tank. It's going to mow over you every time. And here is a bunch of shepherds with sticks considering going to war against 900 iron chariots. Impossible odds. Verse 3. Here's our cycle. So the children of Israel cried out to Yahweh, for Jabin had those 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 years he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Oh man, this is not looking good. Verse 4. Now Deborah, enter our hero. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. First of all, I'll stop just right there for a second. First of all, she is a housewife doing housewife things. And yet God has called her 
as one of just a handful of named female prophets in the whole Bible. A very rare occupation. This is a patriarchal society. This is a men-driven society. And yet God has appointed a woman to step into the most crucial role of, of the nation. To lead God's people to be his mouthpiece. That is incredible. Further, she's a housewife, she's a prophetess, and she was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm tree of Deborah, she got a tree named after her, between Ramah and Bethel and the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So she has earned such honor and such respect that the fact that she's a woman has no barrier against people coming from all over the nation to come and be judged by her, to bring their cases to her, to be settled. That is incredible. So she is not only one of the very rare prophetesses named in the Bible, but she is the only female judge during this series of judges. Let's pick up. Verse 6. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not Yahweh God of Israel commanded? Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots, with his multitude, at the river Kishon. And I will deliver him into your hand. Question mark. She asks him in the form of a question. It's almost as if he's already being commanded to do this and he hasn't acted on it yet. And it's taking Deborah, our woman prophetess judge, to kick him in the rear end, to get the ball rolling, to challenge Barak's faith in Yahweh's promise of deliverance from Sisera. So we have patriarchal, man-driven society, and a woman is having to catalyze going to war on behalf of God to free God's people. This is so cool. Note to yourself where this battle is going to take place. It's going to take place by the river Kishon. Verse 8, And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. <laughs> this is Barak, and he's, this is like, there's a bully at school, and he tells his mom, and he says, I'm only going to go confront the bully, mom, if you'll go with me and hold my hand. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Now, we can look at this in two different lightings. The first could be that he's, he's scared and he wants her nearby. And the second outlook, maybe a more positive lighting for him, is that he is depending on her reputation to recruit soldiers and inspire the men because she is already renowned and known for her ability to speak on behalf of God and to lead. So take whichever one you want. I'm sort of leaning towards the first, but either one is fine. Verse 9, Deborah agrees. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey or the taking. For Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with, him, with Barak to Kadesh. So if we stopped right there, 
we need to recognize that there is now beginning a theme of where will the glory of this victory lie? Will it lie on Barak, who is taking the role of a general? And Deborah confronts him and says, fine, I'm going to go with you, but the glory is not going to lie where you expect it to be. It's going to lie somewhere else, on someone else. It's going, to re- it's going to lie on a woman. A woman is going to be praised for the victory that you're going to have. Now hang on to that, because that theme of where will the glory lie is so important to this story. Let's continue. Verse 10. And Barak called Zebulun, that's the tribe of Zebulun, and the tribe of Naphtali, to Kadesh. And he went up with 10,000 men under his command. And Deborah, it's noted for us, just in case we were wondering, and Deborah went up with him. She's still there. Then suddenly, we get this weird parenthetical note, just this side story happening, a verse that seems totally out of place. Let's take a look at this thing. Now, Heber, who's that? We don't know. The Kenite, who are they? Again, of the children of Habub, uh, the father-in-law of Moses. Okay, we have something to grab onto there. Moses' father-in-law had a tribe, you know, spawned a tribe called the Kenites, and a descendant of that father-in-law as a part of the Kenites is Heber. Okay, sort of following you here. Had separated himself from the Kenites from his tribe and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zanaim, which is beside Kadesh. Now, what's happening in Kadesh? Barak and Deborah are recruiting troops at Kadesh. And we get this side note about a descendant of the father in law of Moses breaking off from his tribe called the Kenites and living right outside the recruitment ground of Barak and Deborah. And then it just leaves us hanging. And we switch back to the story. Let's take a look at verse 12. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Harosheth, Hagayim, to the river Kishon. This battle is going to take place, again, note, by the river Kishon. Then Deborah says to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which Yahweh has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not Yahweh gone out before you? So Barak went down from the mountain to Bor with 10,000 men following him. Again, we have the idea of Barak is sort of sitting around, and it takes Deborah to stir him and motivate him to action. Verse 15. Then Yahweh routed, or defeated, Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted, or jumped, from his chariot and fled away on foot. Sisera's army is completely defeated to the last man. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harosheth, Hagayim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left except for this one guy, Sisera, who jumped out of his chariot and took off running. Now, we don't get a lot of insight as to how the battle was won in this portion right here. But if we jump to chapter 5, after the victory that they won, Barak and Deborah 
write a song for the whole congregation to sing together about their victory. And it gives us a couple clues. Let's take a look at Judges chapter 5. And we're going to read verses 4 in the first half of top, top of 5. Yahweh, you ready for this? Yahweh went out from Seir when you marched from the field of Edom. The earth trembled and the heavens poured. The clouds also poured and the mountains gushed forth before Yahweh. Let's jump to verse 20. Then they fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. Listen to this. The torrent of Kishon, the river Kishon, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. Oh, my soul, march on in strength. Then the horse's hooves pounded, galloping, galloping of his steeds. And so in this poetic song, we get the insight that in the middle of this battle, a cloud burst opened up on their field, overflowed the river, and it sounds like the river will either wash them away or it flooded the field to the point that their chariots were stuck in the mud and their horses were stuck, making them easy prey for Barak. Here they are, these 900 army tanks of iron and they become completely useless before God. How incredible is that? Yahweh had defeated Sisera's army. He dumps rain on them. He overflows the river. They're stuck in the mud. And Sisera, now we understand why he needed to jump from his chariot and take off running. Verse 17. However, Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. I want to stop right there for a second. In my search through the commentaries to find out who the Kenites were, the Kenites were Moses' father-in-law's tribe that came from him. And they, Kenite directly translates to smiths, as in metalsmiths. The kind of people that are working with bronze and forming tools or weapons, swords, etc., etc., etc. And this tribe usually associated itself with the tribe of Judah because of the whole Moses father-in-law connection. They're traveling with the Israelites. Now, follow this. It's so interesting. Let's read this again. However, Sisera fled away on foot in the tent of Jael. This is the first time we hear of her, but she is the wife of Heber, who we knew separated from the Kenites and was living outside of Kadesh. For there was peace between King Jabin and Hazor, the house of Heber the Kenite. That is interesting. The tribe that was connected to Moses, that was associated with God's people, the tribe of Judah, for some reason is no longer alliance with Judah, but aligned with the Canaanites, with the bad guys. That is so interesting. Is there a connection between this tribe of metal workers and Sisera's iron chariots? Is the reason that they broke off from the Canaanites is because Heber and Jael were sympathizers with Israel when the Kenites were in an alliance with the Canaanites? That's so interesting to me. Now, obviously, asking these questions is just conjecture, but let's find out what happens. Verse 18, Then Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, 
turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into her tent, she covered him with a blanket. Now, if she is recognized as a Kenite, he would assume that she is a compatriot, an ally with, with his nation. So he, would, he might trust her. Verse 19, then he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink and covered him. Then he said to her, stand at the door of the tent. And if any man comes and acquires of you and says, is there a man here? You shall say no. What incredible treachery and tact this lady is, is showing. Verse 21, then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went into the ground for he was fast asleep and weary. And in case you weren't sure, so he died. <laughs> that took an interesting turn, right? Come aside. Come hang out in my tent. You thirsty? I'll give you some milk. Take a nap. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Like what kind of anger management issues does this lady have? It only takes one good hit into the temple you know, to kill a man, but she drives it right through his head into the ground. In the poem, in the next chapter, he uses the word split, as in it split his head and went into the ground. <laughs> it's just wild. What incredible treachery and finesse she uses to bait him to his death. She goes softly. Oh, man, it's so wild. So in their society, it was a wife's job to set up the tent. So she would have been skilled with the use of a hammer and a tent peg. This was not the first time that she used these items. She would be actually rather talented with it. Also in their, in their culture, it would be a disgrace to be killed by a woman. <laughs> imagine Heber, her husband. He's like coming home from the office. How was your day, honey? What did you do? Why does the bed smell like bleach? And why is there a hole in the pillow? What, what has gone on here? A woman, not a man. And it wasn't Deborah, who we expect as the reader, won the day. Let's keep going. Verse 22, then Barak pursued Sisera. Jael came out to meet him and said to him, come, I will show you the man who you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera, dead with the peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the glory did not go where we expected it to. Verse 23, so God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. And Israel is going to deal with a lot of different enemies. But this verse is talking about when they come to the end, it will not be long that they're no longer dealing with the Canaanites. They become an enemy that is just history. Now, just, just for laughing sake. I want to read the, an excerpt from the poem, the song. People were singing this in chapter five that discusses JL. And it just cracks me up. I, I hope you find this as funny as I do. Just listen for the tone change here. You ready for this? Let's, this is chapter five. We're going to start reading at verse 24. And, okay, prepare yourself. 
Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Blessed is she among the women in the tents. He asked for water. She gave him milk. She brought out cream in a lordly bowl. She stretched out her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer. She pounded Sisera. She pierced his head. She split and struck through his temple. At her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. At her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. Thus speaketh the word of the Lord. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> oh, I love the Bible. It absolutely cracks me up. Characters in the Bible are not meant to be heroes so that we can be like them. We're supposed to ask the question of what is God teaching us about himself through this character? What about this character can we take away to learn about God? And in every respect, looking forward to Jesus. So what do we learn about God from Deborah? I think we can walk away with the recognition and the understanding that God goes with us. In this story, if we're going to relate to somebody, we relate to Barak, the one who says, I I really don't want to go unless I know that you're with me, unless you're coming with me. There's a great story back in Exodus. It's Exodus chapter 33. And the context is that Moses was gone for a while, and the children of Israel come up with the great idea of melting down their jewelry and creating an idol for themselves to worship. God's over here, manifested on the mountain in flames, and they decide to worship a gold cow. It's ludicrous. God talks to Moses and is like, the people are getting way out of hand down there. You better go down there and say something or I'm about to kill everybody. And so Moses goes down and he brings, you know, conviction. He melts down the gold and grinds it in powder and makes them drink it. And then he goes before God to ask for repentance for the people from God. Because that was his heart. For some reason, Moses loved these people. And so he goes to God to intercede on behalf of them. And let's just read a few verses. This is 33 verse 1, and then we're going to jump to verses 3 through 4. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. Jumping to three, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I continue, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked, stubborn, hard-headed people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on their ornaments, their robes. God is saying, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold up to my end of the deal. I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to send you off to the good things that I had in store for you. But you need to know, I'm not going with you. My presence can't go with you because I'm going to roast you on the walk there. And this just breaks their hearts. Let's see how Moses responds. We're going to read verses 12 and then jump 15 through 18. Moses' response, then Moses says to Yahweh, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now let's jump to 15. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how will it be known that, that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except that you go with us? 
So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So Yahweh said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. God says, go and you can have all the good things, but I won't go with you. And Moses' response is, Heavenly, Heavenly Father, Yahweh, God, if you're not going, we don't want to go. If your presence won't go with us, we don't want to move. We do not want to be separate from your presence. In every way, I think we can learn from Deborah and Barak's interaction that our God goes with us wherever we go and whatever we're doing. Our God is Emmanuel, God with us. Now I'm going to take a momentary rabbit trail. But I promise it's going to come full circle back around. Bear with me for a minute. But I find this really interesting, and I hope that it'll be a seed in your life. Every day we make dozens of choices. Every day. And there is a hierarchy of how we make those choices. And the bottom level, the ground level of how we make choices is, does something feel good? Then I'll do it again. If it doesn't feel good, then I won't do it again. Bottom level, how do I feel about it? Is it pleasurable? Is it not pleasurable? And you know, most of society is still functioning right here in level one. This is where animals function. This is how you train a dog. This is where my toddler is. Is If it's something I enjoy, I do it again. If it's something I don't enjoy or I get punished, then I don't do it again. Bottom level. The next level up is the question, is it wise? No, is it, is it right? The next level is right and wrong. And we would do well just to get a majority of the United States, the majority of the world, just to move from level one to level two, to understanding right or wrong. This is what I'm trying to teach uh, my near four-year-old, is don't just go with your feelings or what feels good or doesn't feel good, but understand what is right and understand what is wrong. Do what is right and reject what is wrong. Now, every level supersedes or can supersede the ones beneath it. Every level can embrace the levels below it and every level can supersede it when necessary. The next level up is, is this wise? Is it wise or is it foolish? Now, sometimes... You can argue that this thing is not necessarily bad, but it may not be wise. Maybe there is nothing sinful about going to a certain party. You have no intentions and probably will not be engaging in anything sinful at the party. But is it wise to be there? Well, no. You're in a place where you're subjecting yourself to all sorts of opportunity for things to happen to you. So what necessarily isn't wrong isn't necessarily wise. The next level up is, and this is where we are trying to grow to, does this please God? Does it please God? It is wise to save all your money, but God may ask you to give it all away. You see, the the wisdom... Level, level three, that is the peak 
that an ungodly society can reach. Entrepreneurs and counselors have all grown up through this level and, and they've made millions of dollars and they've helped people psychologically and, and people that study cultures are able to operate, but the third level is their ceiling. We take a step beyond that and we ask, does this please God? How do we know what pleases our Father? Now before I move on, I just want to take a caveat to show that the Bible is constantly trying to move us up through the levels. If you look at Mount Sinai, when God gave them the Ten Commandments and all those rules, he's trying to move them from level one to level two. And then Solomon comes in with his Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and he's trying to move people from level two to level three. And then we have Jesus who steps onto the scene, and he says things like, you know, you heard that it's wrong, level two, to commit adultery, but I say to you that if you lust after someone in your heart, you have committed adultery, level four. You have heard that if you, that it's wrong to hate somebody, level two, but if you hate them, then you've already murdered them in your heart, level four. And at another time, the Pharisees try to trap him and say, hey, Jesus, Moses, you know the whole divorce issue? Moses gave us the permission to write a certificate of a divorce. How wise was that? That would have been considered very wise of dealing with such a sticky issue. And Jesus takes it all the way back to Genesis 2 and says, no, 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 the two have become one flesh. Don't let man separate what God brought together, level four. Isn't that what Jesus is summing up in totality when he says, love God and love people, and the rest of the law is under those two? If you're functioning in level four, everything else works itself out. Isn't that incredible? What pleases God, that that is the filter that we live our lives through. That is where we're trying to grow to as mature Christians. But how do we know what pleases our Father? We need to learn His voice. We need to hear what he's saying to us, where he's leading. But how do we learn his voice? I've got a quote from Timothy Keller, and it's this. Like a baby learning language, we learn to communicate with God by first listening to his word, the Bible, the word of God. You see, by, by making a perpetual study of the Bible, we get to know him and learn his voice so that we can recognize his voice among the many that are swirling around all the time. The rest of the voices begin to sound shallow and empty, and his voice begins to sound clear and true. Like a mom who can recognize her child's cry amidst dozens we begin to know the Lord so well that we recognize his voice and we learn his voice through studying his word. It's just like my wife. Despite how long we've been together, I can't ask her about every single subject that's out there. I really haven't even thought to do that. But if you asked me a question about something that we probably haven't talked about, the odds are I would know exactly what she would say about it because I know her so well. I know how she would respond. I know her character. I know all the little things that make her who she is and how she thinks so that I would know how she would act in a situation. I know what she would say to a certain circumstance because I know her that well. That is the way we learn 
who God is, and we learn what he says about things so well through our study of the Bible. I know it sounds redundant week after week in Sunday school and at church that we're supposed to read the Bible, but I'm telling you, we should study the Bible with the purpose of knowing his voice so that when we're confronted with choices and circumstances throughout the day, we don't have to like run back to the Bible. We already know God's character enough to be able to answer this choice, this circumstance, this question. And guess what? The Bible doesn't approach every single life choice that you might have, but it gives us a full revelation of what God wants us to know about himself. It is a complete account of him revealing his own character and his own voice so that we can know him, so we can please him. Thank you, Lord, for your word. So what do Barak and Jael teach us about God? Like Barak, we're just servants, simply called to be obedient. Sometimes having to be motivated, kicked in the rear end. Like Joel, JL, it's Jesus who makes the final critical blow, and it's Jesus who gets the glory. Where does the glory fall? It doesn't fall on Barak, and it doesn't fall on Deborah. It ends up falling someplace unexpected. So many times, preachers can get on stage or celebrities or athletes, and you expect the glory to be on them. But somebody who walks pleasing God, someone who walks knowing his voice, never cares if their name is known at all. They just want God to get all the glory. If you were to ask some of the greatest, coolest, God-serving preachers out there, and you said, could you, if you could erase your name off of every sermon, every great famous sermon or book that you wrote, or would you do it? And every one of them that walks pursuing God's glory would say, absolutely, erase my name. Every one of those, every one of those sermons, every one of those books, every great thing I did, all glory goes to Jesus Christ. How incredible is that? We have a God who goes with us. We live making choices to please him. We are servants and he gets all the glory. Check this out. Judges chapter 4, 15. We sort of skimmed over it. And it says, And Yahweh defeated Sisera and all his chariots and all his army. It doesn't say Barak defeated them. It says, and Yahweh defeated them. The whole poem of chapter 5 is giving glory to God. Not to Deborah. It mentions her. It mentions Jael. But it's Yahweh who opens up the heavens, who floods the river, who defeats the enemy. He gets all the glory. Our mission as the people of God is to be obedient, knowing that our Father is with us. That should give us such peace knowing that in the worst of circumstances, in the hardest of times, he is with us. We draw close to him and he draws near to us. He is Emmanuel. There's somebody within the sound of my voice that needs to hear that right now. That at any moment, you can ask the Lord, are you with me? And he's going to respond to you with, yes, I am near. Our mission is to be obedient, knowing our Father is with us and directing all the glory to him. Just like John the Baptist said, I must increase and he must decrease.
Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible story of Deborah, of Barack, and JL. <laughs> JL, who needs a Marvel movie named after her. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to study your word and to give you glory. Lord, I pray that you will have your way in every man and woman of God. Teach us to teach. Lead us to lead. Let us be lights in dark places. Let us learn your voice so well that we can please you at every turn. That our decisions aren't based on what feels good, on what's necessarily right, necessarily wise, but we base our decisions on what pleases you, our Father. You are a good and gracious God. In Jesus' name, amen.